We've been teaching in the book of James. Let's open our Bibles to the book of James, the second chapter. We gave you a division of the whole chapter earlier, and I will just uh, cap the last two points of this division and say that we have, in verses 14 through 20, we have salvation through the word of faith. And then we taught this section last week, clarification through illustration. That was verses 21 through 26, and we didn't quite finish that. Now, what we're doing is, is to clarify something, that if salvation is by grace through faith, as Paul teaches us, and he does, and not of works, lest any man should boast, and he states that very emphatically, then why is it that James says that faith without works is dead? And what's he showing us? We know they're not contradicting one another, so there must be an explanation for the way James is presenting his word to us to get us to understand. And he's giving us clarification of this fact of salvation by faith, and yet it produces works, and, and James is going to clarify this for us. Clarification through illustration. And he uses two different people in the Old Testament to illustrate and to clarify what he's talking about. Now we'll pick up and we'll recap it for some of those that were not here. Just for the sake of those, we'll read from verse 18 on down. We ended up with verse 23, but we must touch on it at least briefly. It says, Yea, a man may say, this is chapter 2, verse 18, Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. And James says, Show me, show me, I want to see, show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Now, a man may say he has faith and doesn't have anything to prove it, right? And a man may uh, truly have faith, but if he does have faith, he, he will be able to prove it by his works. And that's what James is talking about. Show me. I want to see it. I want some evidence of it. I want some proof of it in your life. And that's where James is coming from. And then he says, Thou believest there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. They, they believe, they have faith, belief in faith. They believe, they have faith that there's a God. They don't have a personal faith in trusting God for their own, but they believe that there is a God, right? Even the devils. And we don't want to be classified with devils, do we? So he says, if you want to be above them, you must have faith that is active and that lives. And he says, but wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith, now look, without works is dead. Faith without works is dead. Well, now, if you remember, Paul says that a man cannot be justified by, by works in the sight of God. Well, how is it then James says faith without works is dead? If you turn to Romans chapter 4 quickly, and let me read. It says uh, in verse 1, What shall we say then that Abraham our father, as pertaining to the flesh, hath found? For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. He cannot glory before God if he were justified by works. Then what is James talking about when he says we must have works to prove our faith? He's wanting us to show it. He want us, wants us to see another man's faith by what he does. So Paul is saying here in Romans 4, it says, For Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. For what saith the Scripture? It says, Abraham believed God. Now listen carefully. This is a very important point because James uses the, the same verse. He says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. That's very important because he says that in Genesis 15, verse 6. And James uses something in Genesis 22 to prove that Abraham's faith 
that he had in Genesis 15, 6 proved that he really had that faith that, he, that God said he had. And we'll get to that in a moment. But let's look at this. If you still have Romans 4, it says, Now to him uh, that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of death. But to him that worketh not, does not have works, does not work for his salvation, but believeth on him that justifieth the, the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. So it seems like that Paul and James have a complete contradiction, doesn't it? And yet there is no contradiction. Now someone says, well, how can that be? Uh, Paul says that salvation is by grace through faith without works. And if you try to work for it, then it, it's not going to be reckoned to you because you're trying to earn it. James says if you, the faith without works is dead. If you don't have any works, you don't have any faith. So what, what's the means of reconciliation? What is the clarification by illustration? They both use Abraham. Now look, let me give it to you. Back in James now. And by the way, we taught this last week, and I was going to be brief, but I'll, I'll try to, I wanted those that were not here to get it anyway. You have James 2, verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works? When, notice the word when, put a circle around, when he had offered up Isaac, his son, upon the altar. When was it that Abraham offered up Isaac? That was in Genesis chapter 22. But in Genesis 15, 6, God said to Abraham, if you want to read it, let me read it for you. Genesis 15, 6, and I'll read verse 5 and 6. And he brought him forth abroad and said, God brought Abraham a forth and said, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars if thou be able to number them. This is verse 5. And he said unto him, So shall I see thee. He made Abraham a promise. Now look. And verse 6 says, And he believed in the Lord, and he, that is the Lord, counted it unto him for righteousness. He counted this faith of Abraham for righteousness. Doesn't say anything about works there, does it? But James refers to a later incident when Abraham was called upon by God to offer up Isaac as a sacrifice. And he says he was justified by works. Now let's see the connection that James gives it. You have James chapter 2 now. It says in verse 22, let's read verse 21 through 23 and you'll get the whole picture. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered up Isaac his son upon the altar? That's Genesis 22. Feest thou how, how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect, and the scripture was fulfilled which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed to him for righteousness. In other words, the scripture was fulfilled. It was proven by what Abraham did when he stood the test of offering of Isaac. It was proven that his faith was really genuine. And that what God had said before, that when Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness, his works bore out the proof that he believed God. You see what I'm talking about? It was evidence that his faith was real and genuine. Now, God knew it was real all the time. But God put him to the test. And James says, if you want to see whether or not a man's faith is real, you see if he can stand the test. You see if his outward life and, and his profession lives up to his possession. And if his profession doesn't live up to what he claims to possess of faith, then it's probably not really faith anyway. See what I'm talking about? So James is showing us the practical side and the outside of this scripture. And it says, uh, verse 23, And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, Abraham believed God. That's Genesis 15, 6. And it was uh, imputed to him, or counted to him, reckoned to him, all the three of these words. The word imputed 
means reckoned or counted unto him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. See then how that, that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. So what James is driving at here is that if a man has genuine faith, his works will prove this, and he's justified before others. You can see it. He says, see then, the word see and look and uh, show me, and I will show thee. And James is dealing with the practical side of it so that if people want to see your faith, they, just by you saying, I have faith in God, and I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and I am a Christian. And just by that claim, they cannot tell much about it, can they? You may know it, and God may know it. But for a man to see it, there has to be a demonstration of that faith. And that's what James is driving at. And he says, here's the proof of it. We used to say the proof is in the pudding, right? And so uh, that's what James is driving at, the practical side. You know, Luther, he had a problem with, uh, with James. In fact, he called it heresy. And you can't call any of God's word heresy. It's all God's word. It's just a matter of us understanding what is being given to us, and that's why we need to study God's word and understand it. Now then, he, uh, the last part of this same chapter in James deals with Rahab. And uh, James uses two illustrations. We've given you Abraham. By the way, we've covered this ground last week, so we'll pick up with Rahab in verse 25. He uses her for an example. He says, likewise also... Was not Rahab the harlot justified by works? Now look, the Bible teaches about Rahab's faith, but was not she justified by works when she received the messengers and had sent them out another way? That's when. Notice the word when again. See, the time element of her justification by works is different than the time element of her being received by faith. Abraham was justified by works when he offered up Isaac, right? When? Later on, after God had already said he, was, uh, he believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Now then, Rahab the harlot was justified by works when, see the word when again? If you will, when she had received the messengers, this was after she had already made a declaration that she believed that God was the God of Israel, that he cast out the ice before them, and she feared God, and she says, I want you to save me when you come in to take the land. And she already had faith. And they said, Rahab said, we've seen what your God did over there on the other side. And we know that He is God. And I want you to have mercy on me and my house when you come in to possess the land. So then, when? She hid the spies. And then she sent them out another way. But that was her being justified by work. She already had faith. And so it's clarification by illustration is what we're trying to say. If you look back in the book of Hebrews chapter 11, let's read about Rahab in, in Hebrews. Let me show you. In Hebrews 11 verse 31, it says, By faith the harlot Rahab perished not with them that believed not. And she perished not with them that believed not. Evidently she believed then, right? When she had received the spies with peace. So when was the effect of the faith of what she had believed? God. If you go back to the book of Joshua and you look at it very carefully, you'll find the story about Rahab. In Joshua chapter 2, it says, And Joshua the son of Nun sent out of Shittim two men to spy secretly, saying, Go view the land. By the way, Joshua learned his lesson from Moses, didn't he? You know what he learned? 
He learned if he sent out 12, well, only two would come back with a faithful report. So Joshua says, I'm not going to send out 12. I'm going to just send out two to spy the land. Because the ten evil spies brought an evil report. And Joshua and Caleb were the only two that brought a good report. Remember? So Joshua says, I'm not going to give you that much, much advantage to let the majority rule. This time we're going to have two men. And surely both of those guys won't be rascals, will they? So he, he says, I'm going to send out two men to spy out. And it says, and they view, uh, saying, go view the land, even Jericho. And they went and came into a Naharlot's house named Rahab and lodged there. And it was told the king of Jericho, saying, behold, there came men in hither tonight of the children of Israel to search out the country. And the king of Jericho sent unto Rahab, saying, bring forth the men that are come to thee, which are entered in thine house. For they be come to search out all the country. And the woman took the two men and hid them and said thus, there came men unto me. But I wist not whence they were, and it came to pass about the time of the shutting of the gate, when it was dark, that the men went out. Whether the men went, I wot not. This is what she told the, the inspectors that came in to find out. Pursue after them quickly, for you shall overtake them. She says, you go chase them, you'll find them out there. But she had brought them up to the roof of the house and hid them with the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order on the, uh, upon the roof. And the men pursued after them the way of, to Jordan and to the fords, and as soon as they which pursued after them were gone out, they shut the gate. And before they were laid down, she came up unto them upon the roof. And she said unto the men, I know. Now look, here's what she knew. She just hid the spies, but here's what she knew. Here's her faith before. This is why she hid the spies. This is why she hid these men. She didn't say, because you've come in here, I believe God. She said, I believe God before you came here, and that's why I hid you. You'll see the reverse here. The faith comes before the works. Now look at it. And she said unto the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land. How did she know that? Because they were there? No. She already knew that. She'd heard about it. And that your terror, look, your terror is falling upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land faint because of you. Not only her, but that others had heard about it. For we have heard, there you have faith. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God, right? For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the the Red Sea for you. Look, when ye came uh, out of Egypt, she knew this was 40 years later. She had faith for 40 years. She may have had faith a long time. She had heard about how that they were delivered out of Egypt and God dried up the waters. We don't know at what point during that previous time she believed God, but she knew that God was the God of Israel. He delivered them out of Egypt. I dried up the waters of the Red Sea. Now look, they'd wandered for 40 years in the wilderness before they had come into Canaan, right? And now they're in Canaan facing Jericho. Walls of Jericho right before them. Okay, look. When you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites that were on the other side, Jordan, Sihon, and Og, whom you utterly destroyed, these two great kings, and as soon as we had heard these things, we all over... All of us over here, the Canaanites, as soon as we heard these things, myself included, our hearts did melt, neither did there remain any more courage in any of any man because of you. For the Lord your God, He is God in heaven above and in the earth beneath. Now therefore I pray you, swear unto me by the Lord, since I have showed you kindness, that you will also show kindness unto my Father's house and give me a true token. And of course we know the token I could go on and on and expound Rahab and what she did, hang the scarlet line out the window when they would come and invade the land and the walls of Jericho fell down flat. And only the place where Rahab the harlot lived was spared in, when the walls of Jericho fell down flat. 
that was the only place because God knew that she believed and she had works to prove it. And her works proved that she did have faith. That's what James is talking about. Clarification by illustration. You have someone come along and you say, Now listen, friend, you've got to be saved by works because James says so. James is telling us you're saved by works only in the sense that it's a proof of your salvation by faith. That's what he's saying. He's saying you're saved by works, all right, but that is only the outward proof of it and you're showing people in that sense that you do have a real, genuine faith, that it's active, that it's not dead. And he goes on to say, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. In other words, if the body, if the spirit goes from this body, it's dead, right? And so is faith without works. And a dead faith can save no one. And Paul would not argue that a dead faith would save anyone. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2 when he said salvation is by grace through faith. Let me give it to you. It says, for by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. That's salvation. And he says, not of works, lest any man should boast. Then he says, now I'll tell you what James is going to talk about, though he didn't say it in those words. He says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So what Paul does, he expounds the same point that James does, only he does it as the after fact. In fact, that's what James did. Because when he picks Abraham as, a, as an example to clarify and illustrate, he picks Abraham and talks about the first thing James mentions is Abraham's works, doesn't he? He doesn't mention his faith. He mentions his works in Genesis 22 when he offered up Isaac. And then he mentions his faith and he says, so it was fulfilled that Abraham believed God. The scripture was fulfilled that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. That happened in Genesis 15, 6. And he believed God a long time. Some, uh, let's see, I forget how many years, but I would say maybe even 40 years before he was justified by works. See? He believed God all this time. He believed God for a son. He waited for that son. The son was born. Uh, Isaac was grown up. And Isaac was not just a babe when he offered him up. He was a, a strong young man when he offered him up, was taking him to offer him up as a burnt sacrifice. And that's the point of time that James picks up. He doesn't pick up all that previous life when Abraham believed God and counted him for righteousness and all the time he waited for the son and, and Abraham and Romans 4 staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief but was strong in faith, giving glory to God. Romans 4 tells us that we shall be justified by faith as well. It was not written for his sake alone uh, that it was counted or imputed to, to Abraham for righteousness but for us also if we believe on him who was delivered for our offenses and raised for our justification. Romans chapter 4. See how it ties together. Now then back in our book of James quickly. He says, For as the body, verse 26, without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. I believe in those two illustrations, it will help us to clarify the meaning of Paul and of James and how some might, might believe or cause them to be contradictory to each other when they're really not. James says, I want you to show me. I want you to uh, give me the outside. I want to see it. Uh, he must have been from Missouri, reckon. He says, show me. Show me. Now then, we get into chapter 3. It says, my brethren. Now, by the way, before we get into chapter 3, verses 1 and 2 deal with retribution through responsibility. In other words, you're going to be repaid for what responsibility you have. You're going to have to answer 
And he begins to deal with preachers and teachers. And you know, I may make many mistakes as a preacher. And if I say something that is not true to the Scriptures, I do not do it intentionally. And God understands that I'm trying to rightly divide the word of truth, which I really try to do. But on the other hand, there is a responsibility with the teacher and the preacher. And it's going to talk about that in chapter 3. And it's going to show that we are accounted responsible to God for the way we preach and teach the Word of God. So, chapter 3, verse 2. He says, My brethren, and he's used this statement uh, time and time again throughout the book of James, and I think this is the third time so far. My brethren, be not many masters. The word masters here means teachers or instructors. Be not many teachers. You know, there's a grave responsibility with teaching God's Word. And we have to... Study, the Bible says study, Paul told Timothy, to show thyself approved unto God. And he says, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We need to realize how serious it is to uh, not rightly divide the word of truth. So that means that we have a, a grave responsibility resting upon us. And I'm sure that God knows that when we have been misled ourselves or misunderstood a passage of Scripture... And yet, from the right motive and right standpoint, we try to give the best understanding of it that we're able to give. And if we do it in that way, I believe God is going to be gracious enough and merciful enough to forgive our ignorance and our lack of understanding in that day when we shall give an account at the judgment seat of Christ. That doesn't mean that we're not still going to be responsible, but it does mean that if we have the right motive in doing it, that uh, God will certainly consider our lack of understanding of that passage of Scripture. So that's why we try to study it out before we preach it and teach it. So it says, My brethren, be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation, that we shall receive the greater judgment. The hearer will receive the lesser judgment. So what we're saying tonight is that you out there that are listening are less responsible than I am of giving out the Word. And so in you hearing it, you're responsible to either receive it or reject it or weigh the matter and search the Scriptures. In that way, that's your responsibility. You know, Paul told the uh, Berean Christians, he says, these Bereans were more noble than those of Thessalonica in that they searched the Scriptures daily. Now listen, to see if those things that Paul was preaching were, were so, were true. They checked out the Apostle Paul. Now then, if a preacher's preaching cannot stand checking out, he's in trouble. Right? And that's why I say to you tonight that it's your responsibility to do the checking. It's my responsibility to give with the right motive and the right, the best of my ability and the, the best study I can put forth and the best conclusions I can come to uh, based upon the Word of God to try to rightly divide the Word of truth. And I don't say that any man has a monopoly on the understanding of the Scripture, but we learn as we, and we grow in grace as we go along. But it is certainly our responsibility to have the right uh, motivation. But it says that we have a grave responsibility because they shall receive, uh, we shall receive the greater condemnation. Now in verse 2 it says, For in many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, the same as a perfect man, a full-grown man, and is able also to bridle the whole body. So in our teaching and preaching, he's going to show us now, James is 
going about to develop the thought on the use of the tongue and how it should be used and carefully and weigh the matter before we speak. He says, if a man offend not in word, the same as a perfect man. It doesn't mean sinlessly perfect. It means mature or full grown, as it does in many instances in the Bible. And you have to take that in its context as well. And able also to bridle the whole body. Now, he's going to tell us how that we're, if we offend not in word, we're bridling the tongue. We're holding everything in order. We're keeping from saying, we're restraining from saying things that we, that we should not say. And he uses this as an illustration. He says, Behold, we put bits in the horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn about their whole body. You put the bit in the horse's mouth, you take a wild stallion, 14 or 1500 pound horse that's strong and full of, of vinegar, so to speak, and you can put that bit in his mouth, and you can break him to respond to the touch of that bit and that rein. Sometimes you can take a very finely tuned horse and just barely move that rein and he'll respond. Look at these cutting horses they have and look at all the various kinds of animals that they have, horses they have that respond to just a touch. You don't have to take both hands and jerk back. Do you? They know how to respond. And they, it controls what? That whole piece of horse flesh, however big it is. And he says that's what we're to do to this body. We're able to bridle it. We need to know how to take care of this tongue that we have. And if we can take care of the tongue, we can usually have the rest of our passions and our feelings under control because the tongue is the greatest of all the evils. So if we learn to handle that, we've learned a great deal how to handle the rest of our uh, uh, passions and feelings and emotions because that's one that comes out easy, isn't it? Most of us speak before we think, don't we? And it would be good if we could think. I have to take time to think. Uh, it's kind of a blessing, really, to have to take time to think before you speak. It might save us a lot of heartaches down the road. A dear friend of mine gave me these words. says, be careful of the words you say. Keep them soft and sweet. You never know from day to day which ones you'll have to eat. And so <laughs> that helps us to keep them soft and sweet, doesn't it? Because it doesn't take long. We put bits in the horse's mouth. You know they can take bits in the horse's mouth. They have teams of horses that pull wagons, and there might be a... a pairs down there for 12 or 15 or 16 head of horses, you know. And one fellow sitting up here with all these reins, and they all have bits in their mouth, and they can control that whole uh, team of horses. Well, imagine how we can do. We've just got one body to control, and we've got one tongue that if we put it un under the bits of God's uh, restrictions, we can handle that. Let's see. I think I have some scriptures that might help us in that. Maybe this one. Psalm 39. See what Psalm 39 verse 1 says. Psalm 39 and verse 1. It says, I said I will take heed to my ways that I sin not with my tongue. Now look. I will keep my mouth with a bridle while the wicked is before me. Psalm says I will keep my mouth with a bridle. And there's another passage of Scripture that would come in handy. I don't know that I have it at my fingertips. But that, that shows us that you have to keep it under control, doesn't it? Let's see what Psalm 141 says. Psalm 141 and verse 3 says, David says, Set a watch, O Lord, before my mouth. Keep the door of my lips. So it's very important to learn control, isn't it, of the mouth. Now then we're going down in James. James chapter 3, it says in Verse 4, Behold also the ships, which though they be so great and are driven of fierce winds, 
Yet are they turned about with a very small helm, whithersoever the governor listed. These great ships out in the ocean, think of what it is that controls them. They turn that very small helm, don't they? And the rudder and it takes care of the direction, the force of that ship. Wouldn't, wouldn't it be a terrible looking monstrosity if all of the ship was filled with rudders everywhere, all over the sides and front and rear and everywhere to just keep it going right? See, there's only one that controls that ship. And we have something that controls ourselves too, our being. And that's the tongue. It says in verse 5, Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasteth great things. And then he says, Behold how great a matter a little fire kindleth. He speaks of the tongue as being a fire. He says, The tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members, that it defileth the whole body, and setteth on fire the course of nature, and is set on fire of hell. Look at that. How great a matter a little fire kindleth. You know how that someone can just drop a cigarette lighted or a match or something small that is lighted out in the forest. It's been known to burn up the whole a country. Just anything. Just any spark. I remember when I was in the Boy Scouts years ago. And if Brother uh, Hawks looks on the record, he'll probably find the record of it. It's not very pleasant. But we got accused of it. I'm not sure we were guilty. But the Boy Scouts were camping up on Eagle Creek. He may look up the year of it and see. It's in the Forest Service records, I'm sure, somewhere. I don't want you to search it back there, Brother Hawks. But anyway... There's, uh, Charlie Culver was a scoutmaster, and a whole bunch of us boys went up on Eagle Creek, and we were camped out there just before you go up the ski area right on up Eagle Creek. And there was uh, some mines up there that we wanted to explore. We stayed all night down there on the creek, close to the creek. We had breakfast, and we got our uh, uh, things taken care of there at camp, and we went up on the hill to go to these mines. They were up on the side of the mountain. I think they're called... Uh, Maybe silver plume mines, that name ring a bell. Anyway, there's some supposed to be silver mines up there. Had these great holes down in the ground, and you had to go down ladders and steps and all kinds of things. And we, it's fortunate none of us got killed in there and fell down to the bottom or whatever. It's all rotted out, all the timbers and everything in there. But anyway, we went up there, and we were taking these. We had these rags wrapped around the end of a stick, and we lit them saturate them with kerosene or oil or something, and they were like torches. We were going down in those mines looking around. Anyway, meanwhile, a big forest fire uh, breaks out there on the side of that same mountain. Now, there were a lot of tourists up there, and we couldn't find one boy that dropped one of those, uh, those torches. But on the other hand, we got credit for setting that fire. And sure enough, it did burn quite a bit of space there before the firefighters were able to get it all out. And... It came out in the newspaper that the Boy Scouts had set a fire up on Eagle Creek and et cetera, et cetera. You know how that story goes. But anyway, how great a matter a little fire kindled. You can burn up a lot with just a little bit of uh, kindling, can't you? And it says our tongue is like that. Our tongue is like that. You know, did you know most of the trouble that's caused in churches is caused by gossip and by someone saying something out, uh, that they shouldn't say about the other person or about the church or about someone else? And you know it's hard to change those things. Did you know one uh, unkind word or just one filthy joke from a person that's supposed to be respected can ruin his whole testimony as a Christian? Uh, just just one. If I were to tell you some off-color joke, you, you might think 
I know you would think a whole lot less of me. And probably we would of each other. And so it pays us to weigh the words we say and be careful not to tell things and, and act unchristlike in our uh, speech, in our, our talk with others. If we could just show a little more kindness, a little more love, and a little more concern, that would be a great advantage. It says, let's go on down quickly. It says, for every kind, verse 7, every kind of beast and of birds and of serpents and of the things in the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind. God made man as the crown of his creation. He put all things, put him in dominion over all things that he made. You read Hebrews chapter 2 and it says he put all things under his feet. That man should have dominion over all things. And that was in the original state before man was a fallen creature. And yet we still maintain the authority to control even beastly creation, though there's enmity now. And there was not before. I'm sure before Adam sinned, it was real easy to control all the beast creation because he could probably go over and lay his head down upon the lion's neck and pet him on the head. And you don't do that now, do you? So you see the difference. But still, he has him. Un- he can tame him with a whip, can he? And he can tame the creatures of this world, even though the sin has entered into the world. And so... Uh, every kind of beast and of birds and of serpents and of things in the sea is tamed and have been tamed of mankind. But the tongue, I want you to notice it. But the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. Therewith bless we God, even the Father. We'll praise God and thank God and bless God and Therewith curse we men, which are made after the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceedeth blessing and cursing. And and, uh, James says, My brethren, these things ought not so to be. It ought not to be this way. I want you to look again at verse 8. It says, But the tongue can no man tame. Now, notice that says no man. That's you and I. But it doesn't say that God cannot help us to control it. It doesn't say the tongue God cannot tame. It says the tongue can no man tame. You know, this, ought, this statement here that James is making ought to make us realize that if we're to control such a deadly force and such a deadly evil that is set on the fire of hell, that is unruly evil, that it's full of deadly poison, and if we're to control this and we cannot do it, how much more do we need to depend upon God that he can help us with that very problem of our tongue. We need that help, don't we? With our own tongue. It says, Out of the same mouth proceedeth blessing and cursing. In verse 11 it says, Doth a fountain send forth at the same place sweet water and bitter? Think of that for a moment. You have a fountain here that you can go drink at at one time and it has sweet water. It's all right to drink. The next time it's bitter, it's poison. Let me give you the illustration. The children of Israel were wandering in the wilderness, and they came to the waters that were what? Bitter. The bitter waters of Merah. Remember? In their wanderings. You know what sweetened those waters? They couldn't sweeten the waters. The tongue can no maintain. The fountain, does the fountain send forth at the same place uh, sweet water and bitter? What made those waters sweet? God showed Moses a tree. And he took the tree and he says, you, and he cast it into the waters, and the waters were made sweet. There's the answer God can tame, right? God can sweeten the poisoned waters. What's the answer? The tree was typical of the cross of Christ. The the tree is typical of of Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross. And there's nothing that will sweeten the conversation and the voice and the attitude and the 
and the speech of an individual like a person coming to the cross of Christ and being saved and having his conversation, not only his manner of walk, but his talking to be straightened out. And the Lord can tame that unruly tongue. The tongue can no man tame. And it will not send forth bitter water. It will send forth that which is sweet. Look, follow it on down. Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olive berries? You don't go out here at the fig tree and expect to get olives off of it. Either a vine, figs. You don't go to the vine and expect figs. You expect grapes, right? So can no fountain both yield salt water and fresh. So we see it is a contradiction of things for us to claim to have sweet water on the inside and let bitter words come out. It's a contradiction of the fact. So a person is usually known by what he speaks and what he says. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. And we usually reveal ourselves and show what kind of person we are if we just keep talking long enough. We usually let the other fellow know just really what we are. He begins to see inside of us. And if you're around a fellow very long and he starts using foul language and bitterness and mean at everybody and wants to do someone in, you know what's coming out of the heart, don't you? If you're around a person and they want to be loving and caring and forgiving and considerate, you know what kind of person they are. Because that's what comes out. And you say, well, some people put on a front. Well, they do, but it won't last for long. Because eventually a man's going to be known by what he says. And so that's why we need to make sure the heart is pure. If the fountain is pure, the water will be sweet, right? And it goes on to tell us, we won't have time to get into it, but the pure uh, word of God, we're going to see as we study uh, where the wisdom comes from. It says, holy works. The next section, and we'll deal with it in our next lesson, is verses 13 through 18. It shows us holy works through heavenly wisdom. By the way, I didn't give you the the second section. The first part of this division was retribution through responsibility. That was verse 1 and 2. And then verses 3 through 12, the section we just studied, is tested through the tongue. We're tested and tried by the way the tongue responds. And the last division of this chapter, and we'll take it next week, the Lord willing, is wisdom, uh, holy works through heavenly wisdom. Holy works through heavenly wisdom. Verses 13 through 18. Well, thank you for your kind attention. We'll not get into the next subject because we'll just touch upon it and probably not get very far. And let's stand together for prayer.